0: Will you join me in prayer? God, we're thankful for this morning for Your Word, for the encouragement of the words that we sang, uh, and for the praise that it reflects to You. You are worthy. So Lord, now as we look at Your Word, would You, through Your Holy Spirit, work in the, the heart of each person here that these words would penetrate Your words, that our lives might be changed, that we might be encouraged, that we might see You more fully for who you are. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I remember in college, uh, going to the theater and seeing Mr. Holland's Opus. Many of you remember that movie. and It's about a, a young man at the beginning of the movie, uh, Glenn Holland, who is a successful musician. And he has a dream to write a symphony. His, his life is consumed with music but he ends up taking a job at a local high school and thinking that that job will enable him to both uh, have free time to work on the symphony and to spend more time with his young wife. And for those of you who've seen the movie, as the movie goes on he doesn't get there. That, that his life slowly becomes a sequence of one disappointment after another to the point that he grows increasingly resentful and angry and bitter. He has a son and the son is deaf and he grieves the fact that his son won't be able to enjoy the music that's so important to him. And as he grows in bitterness, he grows in anger, he, he distances from his family and it's a train wreck until this one moment, the, the, this turning point in the movie where he has an argument with his son. He hits that turning point because he suddenly sees his life and realizes this expectation of this dream life that he wanted to live and, and the fact that he, he can't let that go has really destroyed what was most important. And to that point, he hadn't even taken the time to learn sign language so that he could communicate with his son. But, but from that point forward with his family, he reprioritizes and reshuffles. Uh, and, and he starts to realize that over time, he has accomplished some things. Sure, not the musical career he wanted, but he started a marching band at the school. He fought to get arts funding in the school so that more students could be uh, reached by the arts. And at the end of the movie, uh, after fighting and fighting and fighting, the school district makes the decision that they can no longer fund the arts at the level they need to, that they've got to put more into science and math. And so he goes with his family to clean out his office, and as he's leaving the office, you remember the scene, they take him into the auditorium, and there in the auditorium is all the students that he served for the last 30 years, including one of the students when she was young, struggled a lot in class, and now she's the governor of the state. And they come together. It turns out they had been secretly practicing the symphony that he had written, and they, they, the movie concludes with them singing or singing, playing that symphony. And, and there's not a dry eye in the theater because what you start to realize was his expectations were really small. And that what had happened in his life and the fruit that he left behind was so much greater in those 30 years of instruction, the students that he had impacted. That, that his opus was actually the lives that he had changed. But midway through that movie, like I said, it's a train wreck. His expectations have so controlled him that, that he can't see the forest for the trees. And I think our, our text today really addresses that idea that, that, that we realize that our unmet, unmet, unmet expectations, we're going to see unmet expectations in John the Baptist and, and in the nation, that our unmet expectations can actually blind us to the truth. Maybe it's our career that disappoints us. Maybe it's our marriage that isn't where we thought it would be. Maybe it's the fact that we thought if we placed our faith in Christ, everything was going to get easy and it's not. But our expectations can blind us. And so as we look at our text today, I want you to notice that the big idea is Jesus is going to address John the Baptist and the Jews, and and He's going to point out how their expectations have blinded them from from the reality of what He actually brings. They've blinded them to the reality that Jesus is the Messiah. So we're going to start in chapter 11 and verse 1. It says, When Jesus had finished instructing the twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities uh, in this text jesus um, this statement he gives in 11 is actually a closing to the previous section you know matthew is written in five uh narrative and discourse sessions we get a story And then Jesus teaches, and that happens five times. So we're coming out of chapter 10, which is the missionary discourses. Jesus is sending the disciples out. And 11.1 is actually a closing to that story. We'll see this, this same phrase repeated five times. And in verse 1, we see Him close that out. And so as we begin to look at this third section this third section beginning in chapter 11 is actually a turning point for the whole gospel. That that to this point in the earlier chapters, we've seen Jesus' ministry marked by a pretty high level of success. But what we start to see is a shadow fall in chapter 11 as we start to see growing opposition, growing resistance. All of His activities in chapters 5 through 10 Have caused several reactions that that we've seen belief, we've seen understanding, and we've begun to see outright rejection. And over the next three chapters, chapters 10 to 13, we're gonna actually look at the nature of that rejection and what's causing that rejection. First of all, though, we come to John the Baptist and we see John's doubts. In verse two, it says, Now when John while imprisoned, remember back in chapter 4, we learned that Herod had, had imprisoned John. When John, while in prison, heard the word about Christ, about the works of Christ. Word about Jesus was everywhere. He was, he was creating stories. People knew what he was doing. And like I said, to this point, there's largely been a positive response with occasional opposition. But here, even John has doubt. He sent word by his disciples and they said to Jesus, are you the expected one? Or should we look for someone else? I think this is probably because Jesus is not living up to John's expectation of what the Messiah was supposed to be. Remember back in chapter 3 in verse 12, John says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John expected judgment. Where's the judgment, Jesus? I think it's important that we understand a little bit about the background of this idea of Messiah as 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 the Jewish expectation of Messiah turned out to be far different than what Jesus actually brought. That that if you think about the Jews, they've, they've been enslaved in Egypt, right? They left that slavery of 400 years to go into the promised land to conquer the Canaanites. But then in their own wickedness, God sent judgment. 722, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. Later in 586, the Babylonians came in and crushed the southern kingdom and carried them out. And so the Jews were subject to the Babylonian captivity. Under Persia, they get to come back into the land, but they're still under Persian control. They go from the Persians to the Greeks. And now here in the New Testament, they're under Roman control. So with the exception of one little brief period, they've been subjected for about 600 years. And so you can imagine when they think about Messiah, what they think about, they want a king who's going to come vindicate them. They want a king who will right the wrongs of the past. A king who will execute judgment on their enemies. When they thought of Messiah, they were looking forward to an earthly king who would rule, who would validate them. Their focus was a worldly focus. And and that's why Jesus is, throughout Matthew, we're going to see Him as a major stumbling block to the Pharisees and the Sadducees because He simply didn't do what they wanted Him to do. And now here's John the Baptist saying, Are you the one? One New Testament scholar says, The coming king would do two main things. According to a variety of texts as we study a variety of actual would-be royal moments, Within history. So he's saying the Jewish expectation was for two things. First, he would build or restore the temple. Second, I'm sorry, second, I lost my place. Second, he would fight the decisive battle against the enemy. David's first act on being anointed was to fight Goliath, his last was to plan the temple. Judas Maccabeus defeated the Syrians and cleansed the temple. Herod defeated the Parthians and rebuilt the temple. Bar- Kochba, the last would-be Messiah of the period, aimed to defeat the Romans and rebuild the temple. He said, It's unlikely the followers of a crucified would-be Messiah would regard such a person as the true Messiah. Jesus didn't rebuild the temple. He had not only not defeated the Romans... He died at their hands in a matter of failed revolutionary leaders. Jesus isn't living up to the expectations that the Jews had for Him. He's got a different program. John, are you the expected one? That's a messianic title. Are you the Messiah? You see, John's message had been primarily about repentance and judgment for those who didn't repent. And here's the thing. John was right. His message was right. He just didn't fully understand Jesus' first mission. The mission of giving his life. He saw Jesus embracing tax collectors and sinners. He saw Jesus' disciples not honoring the Sabbath, and he's confused. His doubts are real. Should I be searching for someone else? And probably a little bit of, hey, why am I in prison? What's going on? If you're the Messiah and I'm your forerunner, why does this look so much different than I expected? False expectations can be dangerous. You know, I think about our, our modern day traveling the world, the, the, the pervasive theology in so many churches around the world is, is some blend of this prosperity gospel, this idea that if I believe in Jesus or if I have enough faith, He t- takes care of all my problems. But we can do that in our own way as well. You know, in the spiritual realm, false expectations are often created by well-meaning people. Even preachers who will tell you, if you believe in Jesus, I can fix your marriage, He can fix your marriage problems. If you believe in Jesus, all the wrong desires you have, He'll take away. And so, when we find the reality of life being different than that, when we struggle with our own sin continually, or when life doesn't meet our expectations, it can be disenchanting. It can it can cause us to doubt, just like John. To say, God, what are you doing in my life? One pastor said, It's it's true that God's word is a solution for all problems, but it's not necessarily a solution for all expectations. That the sovereign God of the universe will do what he will. It's that's his prerogative. And so John asks because Jesus isn't living up to his expectations. And what's interesting is Jesus doesn't even give him a, a real direct answer. He doesn't satisfy John's curiosity. He says, Jesus answered and said to him, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. He simply points to his words and his deeds, which are messianic. Jesus' words to John, he's not, it's not a, a harsh rebuke like he's going to give the Pharisees for their rejection. It, these words are kind, they're loving. There to be comforting to John. That that we can draw a comfort in John's doubt and the way Jesus answers his doubt with gentleness. I think that was something growing up. I, I had this idea in my mind that anytime we doubt God's goodness, anytime we doubt our faith being true, that, you know, God's just liable to zap you at that moment. And as I started growing and being around more mature Christians, I realized. Doubt's a regular part of of life that we all struggle from time to time, some more than others, some more times than others. But God welcomes that. He he seeks to comfort us because we're going to see later in the text He's got an answer for those to whom the doubt isn't, isn't a sincere doubt. It's a rejection. But I think to be His child and to have Doubt is a, is a normal, rational thing. And I think John the Baptist here in the text, I mean, who is more prominent than John the Baptist at this point if he's got doubts? And Jesus comes with comforting words. And He even offers him a blessing in verse 6, if he holds fast. Later in the text, Jesus is going to say great things about John. He's going to identify him as a forerunner to the Messiah. He's going to reject the nation for not embracing John's message. He's going to call him the greatest figure so far. So far from shaming John for his doubt, Jesus responds to his doubt caring and loving. And yet John sits in prison. Similar to Elijah, as he's pursued and hated by Jezebel and the discouragement he feels after the confrontation at Mount Carmel, There's still idolatry going on after that scene. Similar to David, hated by Saul, facing several challenges. As he looks forward to the fulfillment of God's promises, he's sitting in discouragement because things don't look like they're supposed to look. Jeremiah cursed being born. You know, it's interesting, the Bible doesn't deify its heroes. These are men like you and I. They have everyday struggles, big struggles, small struggles. It's sort of one of those attestations that the Bible is true because they're not set forth as these great men who are our heroes, but they struggle and God deals with them as they struggle. But the Bible also doesn't promise them a carefree life. It doesn't promise us a carefree life. You know, Matthew isn't condemning John by telling this story. He's telling us so we can be encouraged when our faith is tested. He says, blessed is the one who does not take offense and stumble on my account or fall away on my account. It's interesting. It's it's comfort, but it's also a warning. It's comfort that you're blessed if you persevere. It's a warning that Christ doesn't become a stumbling block that you walk away from. Because there's no comfort if we walk away from our faith. The, the fact is that our response to Jesus is what counts. That's what's important. My response to Jesus is what determines my eternity. He goes into to, to these prophecies that John's disciples are supposed to take back. He says, uh, and really what we've got here is sort of an amalgamation of, of several prophecies throughout Isaiah, messianic prophecies. He says, go tell John what you have seen, healing the lame man. He did that in chapter 9 of Matthew. Cleansing the leper, chapter 8. Healing of the deaf, chapter 9. Raising of the dead, also in chapter 9, what you have seen. But then he also preached the good news to the poor, what you have heard. So go tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. These actions that I've done that are. He says, you know, it's clear. Jesus is saying to John, you missed a big part of the picture. You missed the whole image that Jesus was going to come as a suffering servant. You had your eyes fixed on what you expected. Jesus is coming for something different. John, your expectations have caused you to miss the bigger picture of what I'm actually here to do. He moves on from this to talk about John and his prophecies, beginning in verse 7. He says, as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds around John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Verse 7, John is not weak or vacillating. Did John ever change his message to satisfy the audience? Might a pastor be tempted to do that, to vacillate? You betcha. John didn't do that. He didn't wear soft clothing like those in the king's course. Was John's message a comfortable message that was just here to make you feel good about yourself? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. No, it wasn't a soft, comfortable message. He was a prophet. He was more than a prophet. He was more than a priest or king. No one is greater than John. There's not risen anyone greater than him. John was a prophet that was prophesied about, here we have the reference back to Malachi 3.1, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare a way for me. And here's the thing guys, what makes John great is the message that he carries. When you go hear a prophet, what you want to hear is thus saith the Lord. That's one of the big ideas in our preaching classes in seminary is, is we talked about preachers who want to entertain people or they want to build an audience. They said the effectiveness of your preaching is, is determined by one thing and one thing alone. What authority do you speak the truth? The farther I get away from thus saith the Lord, the more you're just getting my opinion. John's greatness was the fact that he pointed to Jesus. It wasn't a personal quality. He's great because he introduced Jesus. The statement of his greatness is a statement about his place in God's purposes. He says, the least in the kingdom is greater than John. Jesus is looking at the coming order, the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation. To be least in the new kingdom is to be greater than the one who proclaimed its coming and yet remained outside of it. You know, there's a sense John stands outside the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. John is the last of the Old Testament generation. He stands outside of it. One commentator said he's the culmination of the Old Covenant and the launching pad for the New Covenant. John is not going to be able to experience being involved in Jesus' ministry and Jesus' coming kingdom. So it's not saying this is a statement on John's salvation. It's talking about his place in God's plan. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. This is a really obscure, difficult passage. Your translations are going to be different here. uh, But the idea is he has suffered violence, the kingdom has suffered violence and Taken it by force. So some see this as a more positive statement, at least in the first half. The NIV, I think, reads, The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. But in the context of what Jesus has been saying in verse 10, this doesn't seem likely. The, The meaning is most likely captured in the NASB when Jesus is describing as the persecution that comes as part of His mission that there are opposing forces out there. And John is a chief example. He's a messenger of God carrying the message about the kingdom and he's imprisoned and later in verse 14, he's going to be killed. Grant Osborne says, despite many blessings of the arriving kingdom, John has been arrested by Herod. The Jewish teachers are increasingly opposing Jesus and people are growing more and more discontent with Jesus' refusal to promote a revolution. Why is Jesus not doing what we thought He would do? They're opposing Him. It's violence against the kingdom. It's probably the idea captured in the woe passages in Matthew chapter 23. In the woe passages, one of the woes to the Pharisees, Jesus says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites... Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you don't enter in yourselves. They've rejected the kingdom. Nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You're actually an obstacle to other people who want to enter the kingdom. That's violence against the kingdom. He goes on in verse 14 and he says, And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. John's message is clear. The choice is yours. You know, there's an already not yet element we have of John that, that on one hand, Jesus is initiating the kingdom. On the other hand, He's not fully fulfilling the kingdom. That, that we live in a time period now where Jesus has come in His first coming and He's initiated the kingdom, but we don't see the full bounty and the full fruit of it. And so the Jewish expectation of the coming of Elijah was based on Malachi 4. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That there's a coming judgment to be sure. But Jesus says, he who has ears to ear, let him hear. This is a common refrain to say, listen, think, process. Consider what I've just told you. It's a call for more than a superficial understanding. Jesus is the fulfillment of the, Jewish expe- of the expectation of the Messiah. And He's here. And the reality is what he brings is so much better than what they ever wanted their their vision of what messiah was going to be was like this big and and just like john we have to recognize what he actually brought in his first coming that because jesus came as a suffering servant because he came to live his life and to give it as a ransom you and i have something that the Old Testament saints don't have. We are fully reconciled to God because of our faith in Jesus Christ. That His Holy Spirit indwells us as believers. We live with God's presence in our life full time. That wasn't the case in the Old Testament. And we have direct access to the Father through the Son, through prayer. That's something John couldn't have even dreamed of. We live in reality of the New Covenant that, that John didn't fully understand. We live with the fruit of the blessings of Jesus' earthly ministry, His first coming. I, I, I'm a frequent flyer. or, or with, with 20 years, I flew a lot. And any of you guys in the room who are frequent flyers, you know that seat selection is everything. And I, one of my early flights 20 years ago, I was, I was crammed in a really awkward seat and I fight claustrophobia, and this happened to be a really long flight. And so since then, I've been, I, I was always pretty quick to book a flight early so I could get an aisle seat and hopefully an exit row seat. And I was, I was thinking about this text, and I was thinking about this Jewish expectation. And I get this image of, of sitting in an airport lounge waiting to depart, and the, and the flight attendant, after, after, I've got, after you get an, an exit row seat on the aisle, the, the lady at the counter calls you up and says, hey, we've got a seat change. And in a momentary flash, you get angry. And you're like, wait a minute, I was in the seat I wanted to be in. How dare you? And you know, you just imagine just blood boiling out the top about to explode and being a fit of anger because I had this expectation of an exit row seat. And then the, the lady behind the counter says, sir, we've upgraded you. And you're like, wow, that was so much better than the exit row. And I think in some ways that's, that's the Jewish expectation of Messiah was like this. Lots of guys set up earthly kingdoms. What Jesus did in his coming is he actually, in, in his coming as a, as a servant who suffered, who, who gave his life as a ransom is so much better than an earthly kingdom. But their view was so limited they couldn't see. What He accomplished was so much more in His death. It's it's like the, the ultimate upgrade. But they were too blind to see it. What we have is far better than what the Jews expected. Jesus didn't simply bring military victory. He brought salvation, justification, reconciliation, adoption. Do we live in relationship with the eternal God of the universe because of what Jesus did? Your view is just too small. And we do the same thing, right? We focus on our current everyday circumstances and we want Jesus to fix this thing. When he says, I have so much more for you. He goes on in verse 16. He says, What shall I compare this generation? Here's the warning. It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Anytime Jesus says generation, He's using it to describe His contemporary, the entire nation, and it's it's in the context of of wickedness and unbelief. Rejection. And so the image He gives here is, is a bunch of kids who are complaining. They're unhappy with any game that's played in front of them. Those of you who have kids can appreciate this, right? It's a summer day, and they come and say, I'm bored. And no matter what you tell them, go color in your coloring book. I don't want to do that. Go read. I don't want to do that. Go watch a TV show. I don't want to do that. There's no satisfying. There's just nothing. It's just just a wall. And I think that image is, is sort of what Jesus does here. He, he describes these two games. They're polar opposites. Jesus' game is, is an image of a wedding. John's is a funeral and both are rejected. Jesus, John's ministry is in the wilderness dressed in camel hair, eating locusts and wild honey, pronouncing judgment. It's like a funeral dirge. It's, it's mourning. Jesus is pictured as a flute, dance, celebrate. You still rejected it. Jesus' game is joy. But the reality is Jesus' opponents are dissatisfied no matter what. Not only did you not meet our expectations, but whatever it is you came to do, we want nothing to do with that. And what's interesting is they don't logically reject Jesus is the Messiah. You know there's a part of me when I interact with 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 people I'm like how can you read Isaiah 53 and not repent this promise of a coming messiah who would be broken for your sin it's so clear but the rejection's not a logical rejection it's an emotional rejection and Jesus and John confronted the generation from two opposite approaches. And the generation rejected on both. Jesus is going to be crucified. John's going to be beheaded. You know, in our day, people reject the Gospel for all sorts of reasons. And I know we have a tendency uh, that if we could only put forth the right argument, if we could only give a persuasive enough speech, if we could only deal with all their objections, to convince them but the reality is they reject the gospel because they want to reject the gospel that the work is an impossible work and we tend to even in this sermon we can tend to overemphasize the fact well well Jesus gave them a reason to reject because he didn't meet their expectations but this closing Tell, it's not a logical rejection. They're not sitting back rationally saying he doesn't check off the boxes. They just hate him. They reject him whole cloth. And I think on a side note, there's, there's an interesting play here as well. I think, I think we can learn something about the approach of Jesus and John here. That, that Jesus is going to minister sort of like a missionary within the culture. That Jesus is going to interact and engage and challenge. John is going to interact more as a critic from outside the culture. And the reality is both of these models are biblical models for how we do ministry. Some of us minister within the culture, engaging people where they're at. Others of us Sit outside with a wisdom and an understanding of what's going on in our culture, and it ain't good. So I think both models are biblical. You know, you think about David's ministry versus Jeremiah's ministry. Both of those ministries are appropriate given different circumstances and different engagements. And you and I may have to play both roles in different relationships. But I think there's something to be said for the way both these guys do ministry. But then in verse 19, the message itself isn't brought into question by the rejection. The fact they question him doesn't make the message any less valid. By the end of the book of Matthew, we're clearly going to see that Jesus is going to validate these claims. That, that, That what Jesus is giving here is a condemnation to those To whom the Messiah was promised, but who have rejected Him. This text gives us comfort and rebuke. It's comfort for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, but look around at the world around us and think, what is going on? Jesus says, I've got this, you can trust me. But it's a rebuke for those who demand that Jesus meet their expectations. For those who demand that He rule in the areas that we want Him to rule in. And that's the message. Comfort and rebuke. So what do we do with this text? I think first of all, what we do is is, is I have to say, though I may have doubts, though I may experience tough times, I have to claim to the truth, trusting in Jesus, knowing that he knows what's best. His big picture is much better than my little picture. Contrary to expectation, Jesus, the Messiah, is in fact worthy of our praise. This isn't just a comfort and rebuke passage. It's also a massive Christological passage that tells us Jesus is the Messiah even in spite of the opposition he will face. And then, we shouldn't be surprised by those who oppose the kingdom and irrationally reject Jesus. They rejected him when he was here. They continue to reject him since. It shouldn't be a surprise. And then finally, we face a choice. How do we respond to Jesus? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us comfort for the way that you have um, exceeded our expectations. Help us to take our eyes off of the, the temporary things that we're worried about and to trust you more fully. Lord, we thank you for our word that brings us comfort. We thank you for your son who reconciled us to you because of his blood shed on our behalf. Help us walk by faith in your Son's name. Amen.